Last week, I began a new series called Letters to the American Church. It's based on letters written to the church in Asia Minor. But the seven churches to whom Jesus addressed words in those letters, those seven churches in many ways represent varieties of churches in the United States. And the challenges they face in one degree or another, we face as well. And so these letters to churches that existed 2,000 years ago still speak to us today. And so today I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8, and we're going to read about the second church. Last week, it was Ephesus. This week, it's a church in a city called Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Quite obviously, the church in Smyrna was facing persecution, even intense persecution. Jesus said, you'll be thrown in prison. But that wasn't the end game in the first century. If you were thrown in prison, it was to await sentencing or await your punishment. It wasn't the punishment itself. And so Christians thrown in prison were sometimes later put to death because they refused to burn incense to Caesar as to a divine being. In fact, some years later, the bishop of Smyrna, a man named Polycarp, 84 years old, was commanded to burn incense to Caesar. He refused to do it. They knew he was an elderly and godly man, and so even Roman officials pleaded with him, just burn the incense. It doesn't have to mean anything. Just burn it. And he refused. And as a result, he was burned at the stake, a martyr for the faith. So persecution in Smyrna was intense. And the church was a small minority without power. They suffered affliction and they suffered poverty, closely related to the persecution. If you were a member of a guild and you had to be if you wanted to practice certain crafts, well, you couldn't function, you couldn't work unless you participated in the worship of the guild's patron deity. And so Christians often were impoverished precisely because of their faith. Now, it's important to remember that circumstance because you read language here that is unsettling for us at our point in history. It talks about the Jews who are not truly Jews, but instead belong to synagogues of Satan. I don't know about you, but living, as we all do, post-Holocaust, post many centuries of anti-Semitism, that kind of language makes me queasy. But it's important to remember that 
this, we're reading it through this history that comes later. To read all of that in this language is anachronistic. The reality was the Jewish community in Smyrna was well-established and reasonably wealthy. And they wanted to make sure the Christians, which they perceived to be a terrible heresy, a sect that was setting forth Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, they didn't want to allow or encourage the spread of Christianity. And so they would inform the authorities about the Christians, and they would speak against them. It was in that context that we read language like this. Remember, Satan is the adversary. The devil mentioned here is the accuser or slanderer. And so Christians in Smyrna were being opposed, and they were being slandered. But this has nothing to do with what later develops in anti-Semitism and the persecution of the Jews all too often by Christians in centuries to come. And so you've got the church, it's being persecuted, it's in dire straits, and Jesus is speaking words to it to encourage it. Now, when we read this passage, we are conscious that we're not facing this sort of persecution. But there are Christians all around the world who are. We can forget because of our situation in North America, that around the world, the church is growing faster than it ever has in history. And not surprisingly, with the growth comes persecution. Persecution has amped up in the past decades around the world and is severe, even to the point of Christians losing their lives. It differs from nation to nation, but it is very real. And I think it's important for churches like ours, in a country like ours, to remember that and to try to do something about it. And so we do. So you might remember this last Independence Day weekend, and we've done this for the last few Independence Day weekends. On Sunday, we take an offering to support a fund created by the Voice of the Martyrs, a Christian organization that supports Christians who are being persecuted around the world. This fund goes to support families whose breadwinner has been imprisoned or killed because of their faith. What happens to them? Well, they need support, and our church gives toward that. But it's not just that. We do this routinely. I don't know if you realize just how much our missions team and many volunteers in the church are involved in helping Christians around the world, including those who are facing persecution. So right now, for example, we have five of our church members in South Asia. I have to use the term South Asia for security reasons. And I can't use the name of the ministry that they're, that they're there to support for security reasons because there's persecution because there's trouble abroad. We have five people there who are serving, and they're serving a ministry that we have supported for some years now. In fact, you may not realize your role in this. You know, you write a check to the church, you just stick it in the offering plate, but you may not realize money that you give actually finds its way into South Asia. We just gave $120,000 to this ministry. 120,000. That's the first time we've given large donations, and it's not the only ministry our church gives large donations to. But the reason for this gift was to help support and finish out a school 
all the way from elementary to high school that the ministry runs. And the reason that's important is because through their school and through their medical clinic, this ministry establishes certain credibility with the government. It enables them to function. The government needs schools. The government wants medical clinics. They provide both. So it gives them opportunities to minister and opportunities to serve. And so we have been able to help them keep this open. In fact, over COVID, during COVID, all of that would have shut down. That would have all gone away. The school, the medical clinic, maybe not even come back. But you know what? Your gifts... Your gifts went to support them. $200,000 kept the school going. $200,000 kept the medical clinic going. This is a ministry that is ongoing that we've been involved with, hands-on, sending checks, praying for it. In fact, I'd ask you to pray for our ministry team right now because the area where they're going, I wouldn't say it's dangerous. We wouldn't allow people to go into a dangerous territory, but the tensions have increased and they've received instructions on how to not draw attention to themselves. So we need to pray for God to use them. But the point is, as Christians, we need to be supporting these ministries. Part of what our gift does is it allows this ministry that is planting churches all over South Asia Um, It allows these ministries to start small businesses for the pastors. In other words, provide microfinancing. And that's important because changes on the ground, it, it has prevented them from paying the pastors directly for their church work. So instead of that, they're going to be tent makers. They're going to have small businesses that enable them to supply their family's needs while they go about the ministry. Our gifts are helping to make that possible. I'm so grateful to be part of that. I mean, I'm so grateful. And I think it's important for every church to be thinking about persecuted believers around the world. But at the same time, we think about persecution around the world. We're not unaware that there has been a serious uptick in animosity toward the Christian faith in our own country. I mean, it's palpable in some places. And you see it in many different forms and ways, but essentially, though we wouldn't necessarily call it persecution, that wouldn't be right. We can call it a kind of anti-Christian bias, in some cases, discrimination. It is in times, at times quite overt. It is not generally stated in a way that that directly says, oh, we're going to discriminate against Christians. But that's like if you're in New York and say, you know what, we'll hire anybody. But if you talk with a Texas accent, we don't want you. So you can be from Texas, but don't talk with a Texas accent. You see, so that's a discrimination against Texans, but it's not Texans. We just don't like the draw. That's all. Don't draw and we'll take you. Well, in the same way, laws are passed like this just last week in in California. It passed in the California State Assembly. Hasn't yet been signed into law yet, but it just passed. Just passed. Where judges now, when they are deciding custody cases with children, are are if it if it gets signed into law, they have to take into account the two parents and whether or not they affirm their gender, the child's gender identity. 
if they don't affirm it and support the transitioning that the child says they want under whatever influence, that constitutes child abuse. Now, the person who actually sponsored this law, she's, you know what, she said, we're not taking away any rights of parents or anything. This is not, this is not, this is not intended to do anything, any harm to anybody. We're just wanting to make sure that no child abuse happens. But notice how child abuse is being defined. It's not an anti-Christian law. But if you're a Christian, you're going to run afoul of it. That's the type of thing that we face in this church, so, or this country. So when I say all this, I'm not, I'm not saying this to kind of gin up a resentment that we might feel or an anger that we might feel or anything like that. I just want us to be realistic. I don't want to exaggerate. The fact is sometimes we can think people are, are anti-Christian when truth is they're not thinking about Christians at all. You know? We can get paranoid. So I get all that. I get all that. But let's be realistic. There is this rising spirit. And because of it, a lot of Christians are intimidated. A lot of Christians are being quiet and they find themselves in battle. So even though we're not experiencing the sort of persecution they had in Smyrna, we can learn some lessons from them. Or more to the point, we can learn something from this letter that Jesus wanted them to receive. The first thing that we can learn from them in, in, from the letter is forget the self-pity. Forget the self-pity. Jesus said, I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. In every way that matters, you are rich. And so Christians have reason to rejoice Whatever the troubles might be in this world, we need to remind ourselves how we are richly blessed by God. Some years ago, a young man uh, received Christ and joined our church. He had a terrible drinking problem. His life was obviously spiraling out of control, but when he came to Christ with the Lord's help, he put that aside and his life was changing. I got an angry call one day from his father. Evidently, this young man had put his parents on our church mailing list. <laughs> and the father didn't like it. And he went off on me and said he didn't like his son being involved with my cult, wanted nothing to do with it. Well, I tried to diffuse it, but it didn't work out real well. And the conversation didn't end in a happy fashion. So I went to this young man later. I, it's been a long time. I don't remember his name, but the name Brandon keeps kind of rising up in my brain. So we'll call him Brandon. It's a real guy. I just have a hard time remembering his name. So I went to Brandon and I said, hey, I got a call from your dad. He goes, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, he's not very happy about your faith. He said, when I told him that I'd received Christ, he got angry. And I said, but dad, you know, I've stopped drinking. And his father said, I liked you better when you were drunk. That's something, isn't it? 
I said, Brandon, I am so sorry. That, that just, that's, that's hard. And he said, yeah, yeah, it's hard. But he said, these aren't his exact words. It's been too long, but this is the gist of it. He said, you know, I used to drink myself to unconsciousness every night. It wasn't uncommon for me to drink a fifth each day. He said, I tried to quit and I couldn't quit. I knew my life was going down and I couldn't do anything about it. And what's more, I hated myself and I hated everyone else. And he said, since I've come to Christ, I've been set free and I don't hate anyone else and I know that I've been forgiven. So yeah, I've lost a couple of things. But he said, God has given me so much. I am so blessed. Jesus says, I know your affliction. I know your poverty, yet you are rich. And folks, every single one of us here can say the very same thing. Amen? We are rich. Then the second lesson we can learn, Jesus says to the Christians in Smyrna, Let faith drive out fear. He says, don't be afraid. Why not? Well, he says, I know. Twice he says, I know what's going on. I know. And who is it that knows? The one who died and was raised again to life. That is, one who was overwhelmed by persecution and yet defeated it all in the resurrection. The one who is now the first and the last, sitting in the highest place in heaven, ruling and reigning there. He is the one who says, do not be afraid. You'll face persecution for 10 days, for 10 days. In the the thought forms of Revelation, that means an indefinite period of time, but a short one. He's saying, you're going to face persecution for a short time, but don't be afraid. I know, and I'm with you. And that's what we have to remember, that that God is always with us through whatever we face. Even if for a short time we must suffer, even if for a short time we deal with, with hatred or animosity or rejection, whatever that might be, no reason to be afraid. We can stand for Christ, not ashamed of him, not ashamed to be known as belonging to him. Jesus said to his disciples just before he left, He said, in the world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He did it in the resurrection, and he will raise us up also. And so, first of all, we don't need to get wallowing in self-pity. We are blessed people, and we need to have faith in God That faith drives out fear. The third thing we do is we need to keep our vows. This is so important for us to understand as believers today. Jesus said, be faithful even to the point of death. Now that might sound like calling for some extreme commitment, but that's not true. That was simply following through on their original commitment to Christ. What does Jesus say? If you're going to follow me, what do you have to do? Take up your cross and follow. 
The cross is an instrument of execution. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me into everlasting life, first you have to die. You lay it all down and you follow me. Jesus didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't make it seem like it was going to be easy. He said, you've got to lay it all down to follow me. And that's what we have to do as believers. It's not about what's comfortable for us. It's not about getting everyone to love us, to feel at home in this culture. No, it's a matter of being faithful to Jesus and following him, laying it all out for him, whatever that requires, whatever that takes. So we've got this team in South Asia. It's not the first team we sent. Earlier this summer, we sent a team. And uh, Renee actually got to preach at a baptism service that was, that was remarkable. In fact, wherever Art is, are you there, Art? I'm going to call an audible. I'm going to get Renee up here. That, come here, Renee. Renee doesn't know I'm doing this. Can I take this microphone? Is that one okay? Um, I want to get the one that Art sings with because I understand it's fixed so that when he hit, misses a note. Yeah. What's that? That's the one you want? All right, so, so, so you're preaching at this service, and, and the pastor got some threats on the telephone that morning, right? So when the service is together, the doors are locked? Tell us about that. Yeah, before the service started, uh, we locked the doors. Everybody that was inside the room uh, was aware of that because we were, these churches come from all over to have that opportunity and as they come, um, they're made aware of this is a difficult situation from the standpoint of just uh, this particular situation of what we're doing here this morning. And so they locked the door. Yeah, and so you got to preach, and before anyone's baptized, they, they present a series of questions, right? What do they ask? A series of questions. The, first of all is, has anybody coerced you into doing this? Has anybody forced you into making this decision? Yeah. And why is that so important that they be very clear? What happens when they're baptized? Once they're baptized, as a matter of fact, they completely sign over to the state, um, letting them know that they have uh, given their life to Christ and they are no longer a part of the other religion. Mm -hmm. And uh, the whole state knows that now that they have committed their life to Jesus That's Christ. on their record, on and their that record. can have implications down the road on all Employment, sorts of education, everything. Yes. So when you all did the baptism, now you're a little hoarse. I am. So I hate to do this to you, but right. I'm going to do it because we're going to get everybody to help sing. <laughs> there, is, there is a song that they sang right. when they were baptized. Now, you might think, oh, well, that's, that's a song that originated in the U.S. and it spread around the world. Actually, it originated in this land, in, in South Asia, and it came back to us. And it says it all. And can you lead us in it, just a cappella? I was going to get art, but, you know, you sing so much better. <laughs> Can you do Are you Are yes. you able to? It, it's a song we're familiar with, and it's a song that they did at the end of every service, of course, at the end of this service. And by the way, this song was written by a man in Southern Asia, a matter of fact, and it goes like this. I have decided 
to follow Jesus. I am to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I didn't do very good there. That's good, Renee. Thank you for doing that, man. I appreciate it without warning there. I don't know if I should tell you all this, but while Renee led us in that, I turned my mic off. <laughs> they weren't going to hear me. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we have decided to follow the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we are rich in him. We are rich. And Lord, we are grateful for all you have done in our lives, in, in our loved ones' lives. And Lord, we're not afraid because we know you are Lord. You are God. So we're not afraid and we will stand with you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to follow you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength to follow you in the days ahead. Lord, to be faithful, come what may. And we thank you for the honor of having the name ascribed to us, Christians. For you, Jesus, are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We bless you, O oh Lord. Amen.